Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Howdy, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. My guest today is Andrew Lewin, a marine biologist, conservationist, and oceanpreneur. Andrew has founded the Speak Up for Blue Network and Communications, where he educates people on ocean careers, news, and how to live a more ocean-friendly life. He also hosts the Speak Up for Blue and Marine Conservation Happy Hour podcasts, among others. In this episode, we learn how a landlocked Canadian applies to over 400 jobs and lands one working in the Gulf of Mexico, why he decided to go back and get his master's degree, even though he already had a cool job, and how Andrew is still able to be a marine biologist, even though he doesn't live anywhere near the ocean. Andrew's story illustrates how when you can get creative and step out of your comfort zone, magical things can happen. Here's Andrew. Hey, Andrew. Thank you for being on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, and welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So for listeners, Andrew Lewin is my guest today, and he is the host for the Speak Up for Blue podcast, among others. And I definitely want to chat more about that later. But first, you were a marine biologist. What inspired you to become a marine biologist in the first place? Uh, well, you know, as, as many people would probably say, um, I was fascinated with the ocean from, from a young boy. Um, I, would, I, I grew up in Ontario. And I never really got to see even the Great Lakes a lot uh, when I was a kid. We'd go to the beaches every once in a while, but I never really realized how, how great or how big they were. Um, but I always just fantasized about the ocean. Uh, and then once, uh, you know, there, were more, there was more TV programming available to me, um, I, was, I, I just kind of watched these, these, not only Discovery, but like Jacques Cousteau, uh, and, and these wonderful uh, BBC episodes that we used to get in Canada. And um, it was just, it, it was just fascinated me. I was like, I want to be in tropical waters. I want to be swimming with dolphins. I want to study sharks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, just kind of drove my passion uh, for, uh, for marine biology. So ever since I was a young kid, when I was in grade nine, I knew I wanted to be a marine biologist, but it, it happened before that. Did you, were you able to go to the ocean often, family trips, or just, my, just studying Jacques? My first time to the oceans when I, was when I was nine years old. We took a trip down to Florida. Uh, and we, did, we did Disney, and then we did St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, or Clearwater Beach, sorry. And it was wonderful. I was, like, I was in the water all the time, um, looking at starfish, looking at sand dollars. It was just, uh, it was epic for me. And, and that just kind of solidified my need to be in the ocean more. All right. So you are in high school and you're applying to colleges. And I did, I did some researching on the webs and you went to Acadia University. What made you choose that? Because you knew you wanted to be a marine biologist going in. Yeah, well, that's where I did my master's. So I actually did. Yeah, I did my master's at Acadia, which is in Nova Scotia, uh, which okay. makes sense because it's by an ocean. My undergraduate degree was at the University of Guelph, which is in like central Ontario. Not much water around, especially in ocean. Um, but we had a great marine biology program there. Uh, there was some, a lot of, of, of like Canadian known marine biologists that were there. We had one of the most prominent ichthyology labs uh, at, the, at, the, at the university. Um, so it was just one of those compelling things. It was an hour away from home. 
Uh, so it was nice to be close to home and, uh, and learn about marine biology at the same time. At one point, uh, they did have like seals and a dolphin uh, for studying uh, in, in captivity. Obviously, they got rid of that once they realized that that wasn't a good thing for them. Uh, and then um, and we used to go to field trips like we used to do like classes away. Um, so it was almost like, an, you know, one of those experiences. And we'd go to Huntsman Marine Lab, which was in um, St. Andrews, New Brunswick. Uh, right by the water so it was actually called St. Andrews by the sea and it was a, a wonderful marine lab there we got to go out in the ocean a number of times and, and that was my sort of my first time on a on a boat doing research in the ocean was when I was 21 <laughs> you know um, and so so not a lot of experience on the water for sure uh, in university um, and, and so so after my undergraduate I, I decided you know I got to find a job uh, and I worked locally as a as a as a technician in a you know as a wetland technician here in in Toronto where I grew up, and um, and I did that for about six months. That contract ran out, and I was had to wor- I had to work and I had to find a job. So I was looking for a job, and I was working at an, an aquarium store. Uh, in the meantime, and man, those six the next six months before I found the next job uh, w- were insane. I think I I put out four hundred resumes. Uh, before I found a job. I mean, I, I applied to everything, right? So I, I graduated with an undergraduate degree and I applied for, you know, positions that I shouldn't have been applying for. Masters, PhD. I was like, no, I can do that kind of stuff. Uh, some, one of them I had yet to have an MBA. I didn't even know what an MBA was. I was like, I can do that. Like, that's no problem. Um, and it was just like a lot of them I, I shouldn't have even applied for, but I did because I was like, I'm just, I just, I just want to be in marine biology. That's all I want to do. Just want to do marine science and conservation. Um, and then I got this job at, at LUMCON, which is the Louisiana Marine, Louisiana University's Marine Consortium. And it's, it's in the, at the tip of Louisiana, Southern Louisiana. Uh, and I was a Marine technician on that boat. Mm. And that was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. I was out of the water probably for about eight months uh, on and off. Uh, we would have researchers come on from all over the country, all over the world, and they would do their studies, including the Mississippi uh, plume study, the, the hypoxia study. The mm. hypoxia study. Um, so we would do a lot of like dissolved uh, uh, DO, sort of dissolved oxygen uh, measurements along a number of, of sampling points. Um, they did a few trips through the year in one big two-week long trip, um, which is was, was fascinating to be a part of because at that point, I'd never really been a part of a lot of experiments, a lot of studies. And that was a great introduction to just what different researchers uh, were doing and, and the type of research that they were doing. And I got to interact with all of them. I would be the liaison. The what was your role on the boat? So mine was actually looking after all the instrumentation that we had, oceanographic mm-hmm. instrumentation. So uh, the CTDs, uh, mm-hmm. the acoustic Doppler systems that we had, we had two of those. Um, we had air quality. Uh, we had, uh, we had a, a flow-through system, a surface flow-through system. And there was a lot of instrumentation, like it would take temperature, salinity. Uh, there was a fluorometer on there, so it would take chlorophyll levels. Uh, there's a, a number of different uh, instruments that were set up. So my job was to make sure that everything was running. Okay. Uh, and the funny thing is I had no business being at that job at the beginning because you almost needed like an electronic engineer degree just <laughs> to handle any kind of instrument that would break down. You had to figure, you had to fix it because you're on the water. You had to fix it. I had like all the toys and backups to all the toys <laughs> and I would just swap them in and out and I would learn on the job. And it was one of the hardest jobs I've ever done. Because when an instrument is broken down and somebody's paid $5,000 a day to be on this ship, they want to make sure that they're going to get their, their CTD cast. And if you're not doing it properly, 
they're not going to be happy. So you got to make sure you're on it. So I was always studying. I was always looking up stuff um, and always busy, sometimes working like 36 hour shifts if I had to. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough job, but probably one of the best jobs because you're on the water most of the time. And it was just mm -hmm. something as, you know, 22 years old, I wanted to be on this water and it was, uh, I had quite the number of experiences where, which, which made it a lot of fun. Yeah. That's special to be able to get that true hands-on science field experience, right? Mm -hmm. Fairly right out of college. Um, yeah. but you kind of threw out some lingo that people may not be familiar with. So yes. CTVs <laughs> and, and Dopplers, uh, CTV, right. it stands for conductivity, temperature, and depth. And yeah. when you're studying hypoxia, which is the lack of oxygen in yeah. water systems, it's kind of important to know these parameters. And they're for really sure. common in most research, actually, to know those specific parameters so that you know what the water is doing. Even if you're studying like seagrass or dolphins, people want to yeah. know what the water quality is like. Um, and then Doppler, that's just um, sound, right? Right. Yeah, it was, I was almost looking at wave direction. It, it was measuring wave direction and speed, actually, okay. with, these, with these types of Doppler systems. Uh, and they're really cool. We had two of, they're, they're, they're called transducers, the actual instruments. And they were, they were put into the hull of the boat, and they were on the bottom of the, like their actual, the instrument was facing the bottom of the boat, and they would actually be in the water. Um, and I would just, it would be hooked up to my computer system, my whole network of computer system, which is, I also had to learn how to network computers, especially when uh, chief scientist PIs would come on and want to, you know, tap into the network. Um, and so, so, but yeah, it was, it was really interesting learning those, those instruments. Um, the CTD casts were, were quite amazing because we'd have scientists that would come on and they would do, uh, they want to do Sargasso Sea uh, studies. And so that meant that they want to see where the Sargasso Sea met the Gulf of Mexico water. So we would do uh, CTD casts, 1,000 thousand feet, 3,000 feet. And, um, and what we would see is, you know, you'd see the, the salinity from the, as, as, as if ever people have studied marine biology, um, you know, you would see the salinity start to drop and just kind of maintain a certain amount as you go deeper and deeper in the water. But when you find a new a water body that has kind of come in a new current system, like the Sargasso Sea, which is very, very high in salinity, you'll get that extra bump. So when you're a thousand meters down and you find where that, that new plume is, that, that water, that water current is, it's kind of cool to see that jump after, you know, it takes, sometimes it takes like a half an hour to an hour to get down that far. And you're just kind of watching just nothing on the screen. And then all of a sudden this big blip being like, yep, yeah, we found it. And then you could actually take water samples with the stroke of a key. You can take water samples at different depths. So it's kind of a, you know, it's, for someone who's young and just out on the ship and, and, and loving life and doing these types of works and this type of work and, and being able to use this instrumentation, understand it, uh, felt pretty good. Felt pretty yeah. good at the time. I have to admit. That's really, that's awesome. It's a really cool experience. CTDs are a very valuable mm -hmm. um, scientific tool and you got to firsthand experience with oh, it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So what, what inspired you to decide to go back to grad school then? Cause you got a job, you were getting yeah. experience. Like why go back? Uh, I think it was actually interacting with the, the, the PIs, the chief scientists that would come on our ship. You know, mm -hmm. they were doing all this wonderful research and I was helping them collect it, which mm -hmm. was fun. Uh, but I knew in the future, I want to be part of that research. I enjoyed at the time. I really enjoyed doing research. I still do, to be honest. I really enjoy the whole, um, setting up studies uh, and, 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 and using the scientific method to prove or disprove hypotheses. You like and the true science of it. I love the true science of it. It was, mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun. So I was like, well, the next step 
is to do a master's. So uh, I con it was actually a funny story. I, I, I contacted a professor of mine for my undergraduate work. And we had this independent study in my last year of undergrad, my fourth year. And um, it was, it, we, I did this presentation. It was on um, looking at, uh, if I remember correctly, it was, it was looking at the effects of uh, skate reproduction. It had to do something with, I forget the, the exact, but it, it had to do with, with skates, so like stingray skates, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, he not mentioned, you weren't looking at rollerblades. No, not skating that kind. Of, I know I'm Canadian, but not that kind of skating. <laughs> um, no, but, it, but essentially what, what he made a comment during my presentation as that we didn't really know oceanography because we weren't really taught it, you know, in, in, a, in our undergrad, it, okay. just the way it's probably, he would, at the time he was making sort of a jab at the program that we weren't fully, you know, learning this kind of stuff because it just mm -hmm. wasn't in the curriculum, but I took it as an insult that I was up there. So he was telling me I didn't know this in front of all of my colleagues, my fellow students. So I always had like a, a little bit of a gripe with him. And then I realized when I was, when I was down in, in Gulf of Mexico, he was right. I didn't know any of this and I was learning it on the job. So what do you do when you want to get the attention of a, of a professor is you tell him he was right. And so <laughs> I did that. I, I emailed him. I said, you know what? I told him the situation. I said, I always had a gripe against you because of it. And then I realized now that you're right and I want to study with you uh, to do a master's. Well, that compliment worked and we started talking and originally he was at, at University of Guelph. And then when I went to, you know, look at applying there, uh, he actually got a, a new job. He was the environmental chair. Uh, he got a new position, environmental chair at Acadia University in Nova Scotia, in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. So he said, hey, Andrew, do you want to follow me out there? And I said, absolutely. You know, I, I said, it's a great opportunity to do this type of work, be in Nova Scotia. Um, and, and so I did. I, I just kind of, my, my, my wife now, girlfriend at the time, we decided to go and, and explore and have a new adventure while we were young. So it was a lot of fun. What did you study while you're in grad school then? You got, you got your hands-on oceanographic experience. <laughs> yeah, well, actually it was, what I, my thesis, it was a research thesis. And my thesis was on looking at the size and a uh, number of marine protected areas that would go on the Scotian shelf, so Nova Scotian coastline, uh, for macroinvertebrates. So that would be crabs, lobsters, shrimp, squid, anything that was, in, that was like a large invertebrate, especially that, had, that was commercially important species. And marine uh, protected area means completely off, off limits from fishing or was there limited allowances? Uh, well, it would depend. So th these were not actually designated marine protected areas. So my thesis was part of a larger project from World Wildlife Fund in uh, Eastern Canada. Mm. They were looking at putting a network of marine protected areas. They were working with the government of Canada, the federal government of Canada, to put a network of marine protected areas in place. Um, so they were looking at a lot of different components. So there was demersal fish, there was marine mammals, there were sea turtles, uh, there were sharks, you know, large, you know, you got your large fish, um, seabirds, all sorts of things. So there was a lot of different components. Mine was like a smaller component of that, of that project. So there hadn't been a, a, a marine, there was one marine protected area that was designated that was more of a, a special area. It was a, it was a big canyon. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there hasn't, you know, there wasn't anything else there. So what they wanted to do is they were looking at what would be the great, like the, what would be the areas that would be up for candidacy for marine protected areas, especially if you're looking at a large network. And the way I always tell people to picture it is think of the Great Barrier Reef. The Great Barrier Reef is, is as long 
as the West Coast of the United States. A lot of people don't even realize that uh, when you look at it. And there are multiple what we call MPAs, but multiple management areas within that large MPA, that Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. And there's some that are open to divers there's, and scuba di- and, and snorkelers. There are some that are open to fishing. There are some that are open to just scientists and there's some that are uh, no take and, and no access to anybody, including scientists. Um, so there's like, it's multi-level management. That's what this project overall project was looking at was looking at how we can put uh, multiple management areas, multiple zones, if you will, um, in this one large MPA. And it had to do with like, you pick small areas that took up about 20 to 30% of the area in total, but that were biologically connected. Meaning, um, you know, if you wanted to protect crabs, say, you want to make sure that the larva from crabs up in the northern part would actually reach down to the southern parts. And it would actually be, you know, some areas would be a sink for larval, lar- larva, like crab larvae that was coming in from the currents above. Um, or vice versa. So that hadn't been done yet, but we were setting it up to do that. We had to find as much data as possible uh, and put it all together to put it in this uh, model called MarkSan. And to be honest, that's another, the explanation of that would be an entirely different podcast. Um, (laughs) But it's essentially this model that you would do that would choose multiple configurations of, of candidate areas for this, this MPA, this large and multiple zone MPA. Um, so, so it gets complicated, but mine was like a simple part. It was like, okay, we have this stock assessment data that for about four years, because uh, they only started collecting macroinvertebrates, commercially important macroinvertebrates for four years. So what we were looking at is saying, okay, are there uh, assemblages that, of, of macroinvertebrates, so communities of invertebrates that would be in the same area you know, consistently? So stuff that we expected to be there. And what would those areas be dominated by? So some areas would be dominated by lobster. Some areas would be dominated by crab. And some areas would be dominated by a specific species of, of shrimp. It just depended. And that area would grow and, uh, and, and shrink as depending on the year. Um, and then every once in a while, there's one year I remember, because it was only four years, but there's one year, uh, year that I remember where all of a sudden squid came in. And they were a Gulf of Mexico species, but they came in through the Gulf Stream. And they only lasted a year because the next year they were all gone. So these assemblages changed. And so what we did is we said, okay, let's look at, you know, the buffer area where, you know, it grows and shrinks. And let's look at the core area that always stays the same. And we said, that's where the MPA should be located somewhere in here for, you know, the, the specific, you know, management area for macroinvertebrates. Um, so that's what I did. And we also looked at diversity of the, of the banks, so along the East Coast, there are a lot of different banks, which are basically, you know, large mountains or hills underwater um, that have a high diversity of species. And so we looked at how close it was to reaching the, the maximum number of species. Um, so it was kind of cool. It was, it, it was a fun project. I had to learn GIS, so Geographic yeah. Information System, which is like a digital mapping software. Also, it's a database, a, a, a location-based database that's used in almost every workplace, not only in science, but even in business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had to do a diploma for that as well, uh, which was interesting to do. So eight months of that, and then one year of my master's, I combined them both because I did it during those two years. And then I was able, I was in and out of that master's program. I think I was the fastest one to do it, my professor said, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think the school loved, but they actually built a program after I left. So it was a program where you do a, a eight-year diploma at the uh, 
at the college there, the community mm-hmm. college, which was one of the best programs. There was one of three programs in Canada. That was one of them. And then you would do a master's uh, the next year and you, it would be two years and then you'd be, you'd do some field work and then you'd be out or you'd defend if you wanted to. Wow. So, yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. That was a lot. Apologize. Yeah. No. <laughs> but, but, uh, but that's what I did for living in Halifax. Cool. So, so you did this research on marine protected areas. What, mm-hmm. what came of it? Uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> So this is where my career gets complicated. So uh, the idea was to work, my idea growing up was to work along a coastline. Obviously you're a marine biologist, you want to you work along a coastline. Um, but at the time, as I mentioned earlier, my girlfriend moved out. She's now my wife. Uh, and, you know, she was someone who grew up in Ontario, just like me, but was very close to her family. I'm very close to my family, but they knew that I was going to be moving away. Uh, my, my, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now said, hold on a second. I've always thought that we were going to stay in Ontario. <laughs> so obviously there was a, there was a bit of a bit of a problem here um, with what we were going to do. So I said, well, look, let's just, you know, go two years out for my master's two to three years, and then we'll come back to Ontario for two years. Um, and the reason why I proposed that was I met people at LumCon who had, they were couples and they were both marine biologists and they both had different areas of expertise, but you know, when you're both marine biologists, you're not always going to get the same, um, the same job at the same place. So what they would do is one would get a job, they would stay there for two to three years, get that experience, and then the other one would look for a job there. They'd probably work maybe something different than they would normally work at, but then two to three years later, they would get a job somewhere else and they would move through that. So I actually I had a couple on a marine biology couple on the show, Emily Cunningham and Dan yes. Moore, and they they do something very similar. <laughs> yes, I met I've met Emily Emily uh, Cunningham. I believe she was on the podcast. Uh, they're lovely. For, yes, they're awesome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so that happens a lot in marine biology. So I was I told my wife I was like, well, we can do the same thing. You know, you know, I come out here for two or three years to to Nova Scotia. You come with me, uh, and then we go back to Ontario for two to three years and then we'll see what happens. Uh, well that we'll see what happens ended up me staying, both of us staying here. Uh, we got married, had a family, uh, two lovely young girls. And, uh, I've been here ever since. And it's been a struggle for my career to be honest, to find something in marine biology. I- I've probably made the most of it to be mm-hmm. a marine biologist in, uh, in Ontario. I went back, I went to in environmental consulting, Um, for about 10 years. And one of my first jobs was environmental consulting, uh, but it was more freshwater. So it was all around. So consulting a lot of times is around industry. So I was working with clients of ours that were for the, for the group that I worked with um, that were mining companies. And we would make sure that they would, you know, follow the regulations that were set out by the federal government. And so we would, and it was a lot of scientific study. So we had to do a lot of scientific study. So I would come up with a study design we would sell that study design to the client and then we'd actually implement that study design. So it was kind of great in terms of it still had that pure research and it was a right. lot of new stuff that hadn't been done before. It was just in freshwater bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fine so with that. to be, you know, it still has a conservation aspect to it. Absolutely. You, are, you know, you're regulating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, to be honest, we were working for the clients, but also with the government to make mm-hmm. sure that they're following it. But we're also challenging the government on a lot of things too. Uh, in terms of the type of statistics that they were using. I remember doing a, a presentation at a conference up in Sudbury, Ontario, where I talked about one of the, you know, looking at univariate stats versus multivariate stats. 
and the benefits of using multivariate stats when we look at assemblages of, of it was a lot of benthic work benthic you work. you are getting really i'm getting really specific technical. so <laughs> yes <laughs> you can you break down what each of those stats mean yeah for sure well the, the, like the univariate stats are a set of tools that look at one parameter uh so it'd be like a generalization so you're looking at like say something like species diversity uh, and there's a lot of, but there's a lot of metrics for diversity. There's the actual number of species. And then there's a couple of other models that you can put together that are like indices of, of diversity. It gets confusing when you're doing it because you're summing up all the data into one metric to give people an idea of what the diversity is. And my argument with that was it, it takes away some of the information and it doesn't give you the full picture. It wasn't a true representation of what we were doing. So what I wanted to do is the stuff that actually I learned in my master's was using multivariate stats, which is more about looking at assemblages. So how are the communities of, of invertebrates that we were looking at? These were smaller invertebrates, um, but how are the communities of invertebrates structured and how are they different? So when you do a, a study with like a mine, and there's, there's discharge, there's effluent, there's water that's like, you can almost consider like once they use the water to, to do their processing of the mine, uh, of the minerals, that water, that effluent, that, that sort of like wastewater is put out back into the river. Mm -hmm. So it has to, but it has to be of a certain quality before mm -hmm. it goes back out into that river. So what the government wanted us to do was to check to make sure that upstream uh, communities were the same as the downstream of where this effluent was coming out. So you would look so that there's a pipe that comes out with the mining water and then you would look upstream of that to make sure that's the, the area that is not affected by the mine water. And then you would look at two uh, areas down, down, um, downstream of that water. So mm -hmm. maybe affected or in the area of that water. That seems to make sense, right? Yeah, it like, made sense. And you would look at that. And then what I noticed was there's differences between the univariate stats and the multivariate stats, meaning that, that when, you, when you lose some of that information in an index, it can give you a false positive compared to, like a false positive meaning that there could be a change or a difference between mm -hmm. the reference site and the downstream sites. And then so when you use the multivariate stats, it shows there's no difference. So there was a little bit of a controversy there. So it was nice to be able to uh, sort of push that a little bit, you know, and to say, hey, this is what we're looking at here. You know, this is this, there's something wrong here. And they took it. They took it very well. At first, they weren't very happy about it because, you know, they had it all in their regulations and it was all part of the law. But they took it very well. And, and, and other companies started to use that same kind of method to make sure that that it was important because, you know, the clients have to pay a lot of money to clean up the water. You want to make sure that it's a, it's a true thing of that they have to do. Um, so I got to do stuff like that, which was great. Uh, I moved companies after that, uh, and I went to a, a company that did more marine stuff. They were based in Ontario, but they had satellite offices, one in Alaska, one in Texas, um, one in Newfoundland in Canada. And so I was. So your younger the, self was doing a happy jig. Yay, Marines. My young, yeah, I was like, this is amazing. I get to work. They do a lot of work with whales mm. and acoustics, especially around the oil and gas uh, industry. I was like, this is awesome. Down south in Texas, they worked in the Gulf of Mexico a lot. I was like, this is great. I have experience in the Gulf of Mexico. And I was actually working as a GIS analyst. So the, this digital mapping diploma that I got really worked out as being really employable for me because that's how I got the job. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do mapping of like huge databases of um, whale sightings. Uh, so that was kind of cool. And I got to do some analysis on like 
okay, if, if, so we were looking with bowhead whale. So as an example, we're looking at bowhead whales migration routes. They migrate from the Western Beaufort in Canada, west to Alaska. And we're trying, there's in Alaska, there's this big hub of oil platforms. So we were trying to see if there was a difference in their migration, did they actually bump out a little bit because of the noise or the, the idea was the noise was causing them to, to move their migration patterns. So I did like a study, like I did, I was part of the study that did the analytics for that, which was really cool. Yeah, um, that's really special. So what was the, what were the results? What was the result? That's a good question. It actually, they couldn't, they couldn't actually place it towards the noise of that. Okay. Cause there was another study afterwards that was doing it, but there was definitely a movement in the actual migration. So instead of it being just a straight migration, like the, like, so it'd go in a, a fairly um, straight pattern when they all migrated and then it would bump out a little bit and it had to, and it was right around the area with these platforms. So they knew the platform was there. We couldn't directly prove that it was noise. There was another one, another study that they did after I left that had um, actually like acoustic monitoring those remember those dopplers i was talking about but these were placed underwater and they had like an upward facing um instrument and they would actually track the noise but i don't remember the results of that okay. uh, but noise definitely affects marine mammals you know we know that for sure it's just how does it affect it and what can what are the mitigation strategies how do we adapt to that in mm -hmm. terms of the oil and gas uh kind of thing right so, that's a that's um, a huge huge thing right now particularly you know with experimental um mm -hmm. sites and you know, even, even shipping right now is kind of a big thing with oil oh, huge. with um, whales. So, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Especially with the right, with Northern right whales. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know what? I found out why it's called the right whale. Do you know why it's called the right whale? I, I think you're going to prove me wrong if I answer it. So what, I don't know. Okay. So this is what I've heard. I, you okay. know, what? I probably should have Googled it, but sometimes it's more complicated <laughs> to call it. So they are the right whale because they are the right size and the right speed for the, for people to harpoon. That's why they call them the right whale. That's interesting. Right? Very oh, interesting. My, How ironic, right? An endangered species. Well, they got the right. right. They were almost yeah. wiped out and that's, yeah. and that's why. Exactly. Interesting. So what, interesting. what did you hear? Well, I mean, I, I, I just assumed it had to do with their body structure. So oh. the, their size, but I didn't know it was the right size. I thought it had to do with like, maybe they're, they're right facing or something like that. I don't know. But no, no. I, I, I would never would have guessed that. Pretty sure they're fairly symmetrical. It's that they were the right whale to hunt. That's mm. why they're called the right whale. It's kind of crazy. I feel like we need to change their name now because that's such a negative connotation on their kind name. Kind of is. <laughs> maybe we should say the, the saved whale because the we're saved whale. <laughs> not so endangered whale <laughs> not so endangered yeah the whale we saved <laughs> nothing like that hopefully that'll, <laughs> that'll be true soon enough um i love it All yeah right. so, so I, whales. yeah exactly uh so so i did that for, i did consulting for a while i actually got laid off from that position um when the recession hit mm -hmm. uh you know oil and gas took a dip our our uh the, the company's sort of contracts took a dip and i was one of the last ones on and you know, one of the first ones to go. So that was a bit of a shock. Mm -hmm. um, I did consulting on my own for a bit because I did have some of my own clients over that time uh, that were more dredging related and, and more locally related. Uh, so I didn't really get the marine stuff. I was hoping to do a little bit of consulting. I did for like the federal government a little bit um, at that point uh, on some conservation stuff and some GIS stuff, which was kind of nice, um, but not enough to survive on my own, you mm -hmm. know, to pay the mortgage. We had kids at that point. 
you know, pay for schooling and, and, and extracurricular activities and sports and stuff like that. It was, it was a little difficult, you know, at that time when they were younger, we put them in Montessori, we want to pay for schooling. So I started looking for more jobs. I got a government job, the federal government job. And here in Burlington, where I live just West of Toronto, um, there's a, a government building, a very prestigious science government building. It has environment Canada and uh, department of fisheries and oceans. And, uh, I worked there for six years. Uh, as as a GIS analyst at one point, also just a, they call it a, a biologist too, uh, where I was a, a biologist for the Great Lakes uh, Laboratory, uh, research laboratory. And it was, it was fantastic. I loved that job. Um, I worked there for six years, got to do a lot of cool studies on endangered species or species at risk uh, for the species at risk back here in Canada. I got to work on a binational agreement between the U S and Canada about the great lakes and looking at sort of like a near shore framework, which would be how do we protect the near shore of the great lakes? And essentially what happened is people decided people in the government decided, you know, when people go to the coastline of Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, Lake Superior, Lake Huron, Michigan, you know, they look out and they don't want to see green. They don't want to see pollution. They want to see health, mm-hmm. you know, they want to see a healthy ecosystem. So, they wanted this nearshore framework to essentially make sure that the coastline that as far as you can see is healthy. Uh, and that's how it kind of came to be. It wasn't really a scientific consensus or anything like that. It was more of, Hey, the, you know, people, citizens of the U S and Canada want to make sure the great lakes are healthy as far as they can see. So how do we do that? Um, and I think they're still working on it now, to be honest. Um, that was just the beginning stages of it. And I got to work on that. So I got to work on a lot of really interesting projects um, some of the projects I got to work on were not as interesting, um, but still important. Uh, we we started to create a, a geographic database for um, the Arctic, the Central and Arctic region in Canada. That's the the office that I worked at. So it included Ontario, uh, the Prairies provinces, so Manitoba, uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and the Arctic. And what we did is took all the data from all the scientists that that had data on their computers, and we put it all into a database, or we tried to. Um, and that was interesting because there was a lot, you know, a lot of people, you know, have their own ways of handling data and, and storing data. A lot of it's on Excel sheets buried in files and folders. And, but it's important data. It's, it's millions and millions of dollars worth of data. And what was happening is when the, the scientists were leaving, all that data would either disappear or nobody would, would do anything with it. Mm. So we were like, that's an important data for the future. So we wanted to digitize it all make it into a map form and store it into a geographic database. And so that's what we did. That's what I did. So it was a lot of just database and going through data and interviewing scientists to find out what data they had, trying to convince them that, Hey, just cause you give us data doesn't mean we're going to share it with anybody. It's still for you. <laughs> we just want to make sure that it's safe and, and that if your computer crashes, we don't have to worry about it yeah. um, or the network crashes. We don't have to worry about it. So uh, that was interesting. That's, Not a really like good, that's a good highlight though, because you, so you had this goal of like cleaning up a water body, right? And mm-hmm. your method wasn't necessarily to go out like you did in the Gulf of Mexico and like physically take the samples with using right. CGTs and equipment. Your method was to preserve data. So you always had a, yeah. a baseline of kind of where you were and where you're going. And yeah. it's an important part of conservation and you, and you weren't necessarily out in the field doing it. So I wanted to highlight that. Yeah, no, thank that you. is very valuable. Absolutely. I think a lot of people get confused by that. Most of the people, like if you look, you know, when I looked into marine protected areas working in that field, mm-hmm. a lot of the work had to do with how good of a workshop can you put on? 
because when you plan and design a marine protected area, you're bringing stakeholders together. That could be the science community, that could be government, that could be industry, that could be fishing. You know, whoever has a stake in the ocean that you're trying to plan, they want to be a part of the conversation. So you have to bring them together. And I remember at one point I interviewed for a job uh, in, in marine protected areas within the government. I didn't get it, uh, but I interviewed for the job. And one of the aspects of it was one of the tests on the, like on, one of the questions on a test that you had to write was prioritize how you would plan, like with the prioritize these tasks. And it was a list of about 10 to 15 tasks about on how you would plan a workshop, mm. you know, and I'm thinking here, I'm sitting here. I'm like, I just want to do MPA work. I don't want to plan a workshop. I don't have to order food that people will like or make sure that it's gluten-free or make sure that it's not, you know, it's, it's okay for people who have peanut allergies. I don't want to do that. I want to be involved in the conversation, but that was the MPA work that was done. And a lot of people don't realize when you get these big announcements of, you know, the largest MPA ever, or in Canada, we just, we just put in two MPAs in, in the Arctic. Well, a lot of that work wasn't done in the field. A lot of that work was done in these closed door rooms with sandwiches and drinks and maybe a cookie for a snack so you can get that little sugar rush right. uh, and people just talking and getting people together and battling it out and right. compromising and stuff. And, and it's all behind closed doors. It's right. all in this meeting room in a hotel somewhere um, that's maybe middle ground for a lot of people or that's in the local area to get the local people uh, involved. And, and that's what Marine Protected Area Planning is all about, which you don't think about that. No. You know, you think about marine protected areas, you're on the sea all the time. And some of them are like that. Some of the local ones are, but the larger ones are all done in like, you know, in rooms full of people trying to sort of argue of their stake and, and compromise of what they can take and what they can't. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, the work that's done in the, in the field comes to play in these meetings, but to be able to have the Absolutely. skills to sit at the table and, and actually, you know, chat about it intelligibly and make your case is incredibly valuable. Absolutely. Like, you know, you got to realize that science is just one aspect of the entire conservation mm -hmm. sort of field. You know, mm -hmm. the scientists go out and collect the data, you mm -hmm. know, the technicians and their, and their teams go out and collect the data, which is super important. Um, but then it, it, it goes up the ladder, you know, you know, it gets analyzed by maybe the scientists and their team, and then it goes to the policy people. And they, they, they make the decision based on the data. So when you hear terms like science-based decision-making, that's the science that's collected out in the field is brought to you. And then it's, it's analyzed in a certain way. And a lot of times it's shown in map form uh, and with different zones and stuff. And you're like, okay, now I can make decisions based on these. I got to read this map and make a decision or read a set of maps and make a decision based on the data that's in front of me. You know, so it's, it, there's, there's, it's not just marine biologists that are involved in this. There are marine policy analysts, there's mm -hmm. politicians, there's mm -hmm. managers and superiors and supervisors and all this kind of stuff that goes into it before an MPA is actually designed. And that's a lot with any kind of legislation, you know, mm -hmm. decision. You, you get a lot of people looking at it and making decisions. The data is super important. It's, it's part of the process but it's not, it's just the beginning of the process. Right. And, and that's really what MPAs are. They are a legislative decision yep. because after that they require, I mean, ideally some sort of regulation. Um, certainly it takes, you know, that legislation to make that distinction and that designation of a Marine protected area. Yeah, absolutely. So. And, and there's different types of, of sort of that kind of 
uh, process, depending on if it's local or federal, right. uh, there are a lot of local MPAs that are, are community managed, mm-hmm. you know, which is it's similar. Um, they're enforced by the community, but maybe not put in law as, as a law in terms of the country that it's found. It's more of the community fishes. They need to make sure they have fish for the future. So they govern themselves. Um, and they enforce themselves. And so that works well. That actually works a little better bec- and a little faster because they don't have to go as high. And, there's right. and then you don't have to have the red tape. You all <laughs> Exactly. But I, exactly. I think that's really admirable because I think it's difficult for people to always to agree. For, oh, know, for, for the sure. Entire communities, particularly, you know, fishing communities can be some, sometimes a little bit um, or very competitive. Yep. So they want to make sure that like, well, if I stop fishing, is that guy really going to stop fishing? So that the, yeah. there are communities out there that are doing this. Is really Absolutely. And then you've got countries like, you know, when the Ross Sea MPA in Antarctica was designated a few years ago, that's managed by 24 countries, mm-hmm. right? Because it's Antarctica, right? Uh, including Russia and China, which have a huge fishing stake in there. So imagine the difficulty, you know, comparing just, local fishing communities within the same village Mm -hmm. to 24 countries who have histories of wars and economic sanctions and all this kind of stuff with each other. And they still were able, both of them were able to like both scales are able to pass a marine protected area. It's absolutely phenomenal. It really is. It truly is. So, you know, people skills, people, absolutely. Absolutely. How did you get, how did you start your own podcast? How did you start so, your community? Yeah. So, so this is something that's always, you know, that, that always interested me um, because I was, a, and it had to do a lot with where I was because I was a marine biologist in Ontario and because I was working uh, in fresh water at the government. Uh, actually it was before the government. I started speak up for blue the year uh, the BP oil spill happened. Mm. Um, was so it speak, because speak, of the BP oil spill or was that like a coincidence? Uh, it was a coincidence. Okay. Uh, I had been looking at it for, I've been, I've been, I've been going back and forth on the idea for a while. I, and at this point I had just been laid off from my consultancy job. I was kind of consulting on the, on the like consulting for myself and I, but I had a lot of free time cause I wasn't as busy as I would be with a job. Mm-hmm. So I decided, I was like, I signed my wife. I was like, I want to just kind of put a news website together because what was happening is i was talking to friends and i have friends I'm, I'm very fortunate that i have friends from all different sort of cultural backgrounds and uh, professional backgrounds and a lot of i'd say 90 percent of them did not know what was going on in the ocean mm. and they would ask me questions because they didn't know and it was it wasn't necessarily their fault in terms of they didn't know because they were they were just ignorant or they didn't care they just didn't know because they weren't looking it up or they didn't know where to look it up you know, on the internet. I also think it's a phenomenon that if you are not specifically looking for one, like a specific topic or like, you know, ocean news, for example. Yeah. It doesn't like stumble across your, you know, it may not stumble across your, because there's so much information out there. That's right. To know. (laughs) You're right. And, and it was true. And, and it's actually interesting The ones that do pop up that are Marine related Mm -hmm. in the mainstream media are usually like shark bites yeah. Or shark incidences or like a, a boat or fisheries, you know, every once in a while, right. maybe seafood every once in a while, or, or at the time, like aquaculture was, was a big thing. But when the BP oil spill happened, I went to Oceans Week uh, in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And, and that happens every year. And, and it's government that gets together. And, and at this point, it was government talking about the oil spill. 
And so people were freaking out because it was, it was ongoing. Like it was in June, the, the BP oil spill happened in April. April, right. It was, you know, people were still freaking out and they were showing pictures. I'll never forget, uh, uh, I saw like uh, Dr. Carl Safina, mm. great, not only a great scientist, but great advocate for the ocean. Mm-hmm. And it was really, uh, this is really like the BP oil spill happened. Something happened when the BP oil spill happened. I think social media really got introduced to marine biology because what was happening, I don't know if you noticed it too, but what was happening is you had Carl Safina, you had Dr. J Nichols, uh, you had um, uh, 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 Sylvia Earle, mm-hmm. Dr. Sylvia Earle go down to the Gulf of Mexico and start taking pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Carl Safina actually rented out a plane to fly over the BP oil spill and filmed what was happening. Mm-hmm. And he did a presentation at Ocean Week and he was talking about a, a dolphin that he came across when he was in, on a boat and the dolphin was covered in oil. And he said it was as he was, he said the dolphin basically came over to him, almost looked like he was asking for help. Oh, gosh. And, and I'll never forget it because uh, Carl just started to, to cry in front of a room full of professionals. He just broke down, like not like sobbing, but there were tears coming out of it as he was talking about this story. Uh, and it really showed that we were in trouble, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I went home and people still, they knew about the BPOS, but they didn't really know about the effects as to the level that I knew. I had a lot of conversations with scientists that had firsthand knowledge of it, that were down there. They saw the tar balls already starting to come up. They spoke to, you know, fishermen that couldn't go out and fish in the Gulf of Mexico anymore. Uh, it was just, it, you know, all the different, like the underlying stories that were happening that weren't necessarily getting covered by the media, but it was getting covered by certain parts of social media. And at that point, that kind of really got me onto the website, the Speak Up for Blue. I went to another conference later on that summer uh, in Canada. It was Coastal Zone Canada. And at the end of that conference, you know, well, somebody stood up and they said, look, we're just preaching to the choir here. Mm-hmm. You know, all these studies that we're talking about this conference are great, but nobody in the public really knows about it. We had a few people from the public attend some of them, mm-hmm. uh, but nobody really knew what was going on. And they never will because we never get it out to the public. And that, that kind of, that just, you know, the light bulb went off, the aha moment went off. And I said, well, I got to do this. It's up to me to like, I felt it was up to me to start telling the stories that the scientists saw, you know, my fellow colleagues that we would see on a daily basis. I didn't see it because I wasn't out in the field all the time, but I had seen it before when I was in the Gulf of Mexico. You would see Um, it and you have that, that direct line. Exactly. I really love that you you took that responsibility, you know, big thing is to be the change you want to see. Exactly. And, and you took that on. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, it was, it was one of the things where I didn't know where I was, what I was really getting into, but I was just like, <laughs> I got to start this somewhere. So I started a website like four months later as I was planning it out. Didn't know anything about websites or WordPress or anything like that, uh, design or anything like that. And then I got it up and running and I started to write and I was trying to write a story every day while working a job, having two kids wasn't working at all. I'm not a great writer. Uh, but I, as you can tell, I love to talk about marine conservation uh, and marine science. So about two or three years later, after I started this blog, I started listening to, po- I started to get into podcasts. And that's when I started to say, okay, this is where I'm, uh, it's, it's going to come out. And actually I started a YouTube channel right before I did podcasting and uh for, as uh, on advice of a friend and then i got in you know the the video aspect was really taking up a lot of time for me mm-hmm. i didn't really have a lot of time to do that kind of stuff i didn't really have the camera work like the actual camera to do it that would look good um so i just didn't continue it 
then I discovered podcasting and I started listening to podcasts and I was like, well, I wonder if there's podcasts on, on marine science, marine conservation. And there wasn't really an active one. There was naked scientists or naked oceans. They called it for the naked scientists people that had a good one, but they weren't continuing it for whatever reason. And so I was like, well, as someone who took up, I got to get it to the public. Well, it's time for me now to, you know, do a podcast and do a podcast on marine conservation. And then it was born. I took about a year to kind of figure everything out, do, do a bunch of interviews. And I released in June, 2015 and I've been doing it ever since. That's awesome. And it's a really awesome podcast. So you, thank you. Initially, were you, do, you weren't doing it every day initially, right? No, it was, it was once a week. It was one interview. Um, because I want to tell the stories of certain uh, scientists that would never really get access to mainstream media um, mm -hmm. and people that I knew, a lot of people that I knew. Uh, I did it once a week for about- That sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, but that was the, those were the stories that people were interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and actually, I noticed a lot of times when I did those, when I first started coming out of those, you know, a lot of people have, you know, I always heard that a lot of people, you know, think scientists are these elitist type people, but I never really heard anybody say it that weren't scientists we thought about it as scientists that we weren't like because we were saying no you can't do this you can't do this you can't do that right. but i never really heard anybody and then i started to get feedback from people because the interviews that i would do and it's kind of like what you're doing now is i would talk about how they got into marine biology you know how they got to the position that they're in mm -hmm. and so you get that story from them and you almost you know you, you almost fall in love with that story Mm -hmm. And it just, you can maybe like if you, if somebody struggled through their career, they understand the struggles, they understand how career paths change or whatever the story is, they may, they may sort of um, uh, connect with that and connect with the person. So I started to get feedback from people being like, wow, scientists are really cool people. They're kind of fun. Like they, they struggle, yeah. you know, you guys are making a lot of money, but you love what you do and you've had some great experiences. I'm really starting to like these scientists. I thought you guys, you know, were really bad people. You know, I'm not going to swear on this podcast, but, you know, they, they had names for us. And yeah. I was like, yeah, well, I'm glad that, that I was able to sort of, uh, you know, bust that myth because a lot of the people that I know are great people. You know, they're not elitist. They're not snobby. Right. And I think that marine scientists particularly are just have like a special brand of cool. <laughs> might, might be a little biased, might be a little biased, but pretty much everybody I've met is pretty, pretty awesome. Well, let's be honest. When you go to a function or a party, say a dinner party or anybody, and somebody, you meet somebody new and they say, well, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm a marine biologist. People are like, the, the first answer, there's a couple answers that you're going to get. One, I've always wanted to be a marine biologist. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a marine biologist. The other is like George Costanza from Seinfeld. And, and I might be too old for that reference in terms of, I'm not sure what your audience is like, but Seinfeld was a sitcom and there was an episode where one of the characters said he was a marine biologist and had to get a golf ball unstuck from a, a whale. But that's, <laughs> go back and watch that episode. But I get that I a lot as well. Yeah. Have you not heard of that? Have you not seen that episode? I, if I have, it's been a really long time. It's been a long time. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, let, I'll email that to you, the, the number, the, se the season of the number. But it was one of the most iconic sort of marine biologist uh, sitcom episodes I've ever seen. And I, and I always get asked about it. Um, and so, yeah, so you get those kind of answers and, and, and so every, like people love you when you like, they, people like what you do and they're interested in what you do. This is very they true. ask a lot of questions when, when it happens, right? So, this is true. This is why I started a podcast about it. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the podcast, like, I started off with once a week, uh, I fell in love with, with, with podcasting and talking. Um, and I had a, uh, a guy who actually said, Hey, I want to volunteer and I want to help you out with the podcast. And I was like, well, this is great. 
I'm like, how much time can you dedicate? So what I did is I, for every podcast that I did, I did show notes uh, and that was once a week. So I put it up on my, on my blog. And then he came in, Nathan came in and said, okay, I'm going to write everything for you because I love writing mm. and I'm just going to listen to your podcast. So all you have to do is just add, like record, edit and post and I'll do the rest. I'm like, fantastic. And then we actually, I said, hey, do you want to be on the podcast? And so I did five days a week. And on Friday, we had this episode called Ocean Talk Fridays where Nathan would and I would pick out, pick out about four or five stories. Uh, at this point, the, the episodes were, were about an hour long mm-hmm. and we would do we would do a, an episode. We would just talk about these different stories and what we liked about them. It was actually quite fun. A lot of people liked it and there's been some requests to bring it back. <laughs> uh, Nathan got a job, uh, another job that's really, really busy. So unfortunately I can't bring him back and I feel bad bringing somebody else on to talk about it, but uh, <laughs> it may come back at some point. Um, but that went on for like a year or two. It, well, the, the five days a week went on for about six or seven months. And then it was like working a job again with kids, uh, you know, trying to have a full life it just wasn't working. So I went to three days a week where mm. one episode would be a sort of like an editorial on the Monday, which would be me just talking about stuff. Um, the Wednesday would be an interview and the Friday would be ocean talk Friday. And then I would, I did that for about two and a half years. And then uh, t- about a year and a half ago, uh, July, 2018, I was at a, uh, an international Marine conservation Congress in Malaysia. And I decided, you know, I'm going to cover this. I, I covered the previous uh conference through the podcast with a bunch of interviews this time i want to cover it myself i wanted to just do like what was the day like and maybe do a couple of interviews and uh so i actually posted every day while i was at the conference and i was like you know what this is really cool i didn't have a job at that point i'd quit my job mm. um and and i'll tell you that in a second but i quit my job so i went i decided you know what after the conference i'm gonna go f- i'm gonna go seven days a week and i've done seven days a week you know where i miss a few days here and there uh since then so for about a year and a half uh, which has grown the podcast quite a bit. We're almost at a million downloads. We're about 920,000 downloads. That's incredible. Um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite, yeah, almost 930 downloads right now. A nine hundred, Yeah, 930,000. Such a milestone. <laughs> Such a milestone. Almost at a thousand episodes too. I'm at nine, I'm 911 episodes as of today. Um, when we record this. Are you planning the millionth episode party yet? <laughs> uh, I, was, I was thinking of it, but I don't know what to do with it and I don't know how to do it. And I don't know if it's going to be a big party. It might just be me in, in my office really running around and be like, I got a million downloads. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> the life of a podcaster is. Um, it would be kind of cool to throw a party. It'd be, I just don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to happen probably in the new year sometime, but I'm not too sure. Um, Virtual party like a feel like it should be with like, everybody or like a Facebook live didn't know because you can't see other people. Well, I think a Facebook, uh, I think a Facebook live would be cool. Like using some sort of like live software where yeah. I could get multiple guests on that I've had over, you know, like do it, like do like a, a 12 hour day, you know, <laughs> just do like a marathon po- and have like yourself, other podcasters, people who've been on the episode before. And talk about the good, like you bring Nathan back that did Ocean Talk Friday and just talk about, like, just go on an, on a, on a marathon run for the thousandth episode. And hopefully the thousandth episode will coincide with the the million uh, downloads. Uh, So I'm thinking something like that. That'd be really Um, cool. That would be, that would be amazing. If I could, if I could do that, that would be awesome. But uh, that's a lot of planning. So we'll see how that goes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, the, the, 
the thing is that the reason why I continue with the podcast, one is I love it. And I've been able to build this community um, that have been very engaging and responsive. My listeners, I, I like, as you may already know too, I know you just started this podcast, but you're probably hearing from a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just, it's amazing to, to see, you know, the, the podcast started off of just telling other, like allowing other people to tell their stories, like building a platform where other scientists can tell their stories. Then it really turned into people wanted action items to do. So I was giving them, I start to give them action items and I go over things and I, you know, I be, I become vulnerable because I can't do all these things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I talk to different people about their experiences and it's been amazing and really a life learning experience. And when I hear back from people to say like, I had a friend in Hong Kong who listened to the podcast quite often and they didn't have recycling in her building. And she said, we have recycling depots. So her boyfriend and her at the time grabbed the recycling from their place, collected it, and then brought it down to the depot. Now, if you look at it, like in Hong Kong, the life, I mean, obviously it's different right now with all the protests, but Hong Kong is a lot of huge buildings. You're bringing mm -hmm. trash or recycling through those buildings, like 40 stories down, wow. across the street, off those busy streets and bring it to a depot. That had a profound effect on me. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, I keep hearing these types of stories. And and then it gets to the point, you know, I was actually just at Duke University last week and I spoke to a, a longtime listener um, and she had never contacted me before, but I met her there and she said, hey, you know, I want to let you know what, you know, what your podcast did for you. And this is not me tooting my own horn. This is me being very humble about myself. But she said that, you know, between she was doing a PhD and between her undergrad and PhD, she was kind of lost. She was kind of stuck and she was working at a, at a at an oyster she had a job where she was basically working on oysters all day and it was cold it was rainy sometimes and she it was hard work she would cut herself from working with these oysters and she would put on like when she got really down herself she would put on her earbuds and listen to the speak up for blue podcast mm. and it would get her through it you know like stuff like that it keeps you going it keeps me going it made like it made my week Side you know note I mean? for anybody listening, we love hearing from listeners. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Even if it's stuff that maybe I did wrong or you didn't like, I still love hearing that because it, may, it allows me to improve mm -hmm. because I don't want to annoy everybody. I'm not going to conform to everybody's way of that they think I should do the podcast. But there are some people who say, hey, I wish you'd done this or I wish you let your guests speak a little bit more because, again, I do talk a lot. Uh, and so I get that kind of feedback and I use that feedback to sort of improve on the way I do interviews or improve on the way I, I conduct myself in a podcast. Um, but when you get the positive ones, it's just it's you're like, I'm done like this is when, when I start to, when I start to get those. I realized my path. I realized that this is what I was designed to do. Mm -hmm. It fits all of my skill sets that I'm good at, that I feel that I'm good at. People have said that I'm in, like th that, that they love hearing my voice. They love the way I host podcasts um, to the point where I got job offers for doing other podcasts, you know, and I've got job offers to produce other podcasts. I actually started a whole company, quit my job and started an entire company just to launch podcasts for other people. And it's not only, in uh, the environmental world, in the, in, the, in the ocean world, but I do it for companies mm -hmm. and YouTube creators and all these different crazy people that are trying to get marketing out through an audio format like a podcast and build a platform there. I'm able to do that because I found this, this thing, the skill that I'm good at. But the funny thing is, is I don't get paid for Speak Up for the Ocean Blue. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I don't get paid for any of this. That's out of my own pocket. I do get sponsors every once in a while and I have an affiliate sponsor, but it it's not even close to being like a, a good enough salary or revenue stream to be my full-time gig. Right. And that's why I launched the podcast for companies. You know, they pay me to edit. They pay me to host. They, you know, and it's really helped me in my game for speak up for the ocean blue and they kind of help each other. So I've used speak up for the ocean blue as a bit of an experiment to experiment on different styles, structures, content, um, uh, platforms, microphones, all this type of stuff so that I can be a better producer and host for other clients. Um, but the, the, the real thing that's really done and it's through the feedback from the people is I realize that this is my legacy. This is how I'm able to reach people that may not have had this information for anybody else before. And I'm able to change their lives in some sort of way, even if it just makes them think a little differently. Yeah. You know, one of my, my, my tagline is live for a better ocean. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about your ocean on any kind of, any kind of task that you daily tasks that you do, whether it be making your lunch in the morning, going grocery shopping, uh, and not using a plastic bag and not using single use plastics throughout the day. Right. Um, bring your own cup, bring your own water bottle. Your own, yeah. Driving less and maybe biking if you can, doing mm-hmm. less commute if you can, all that type of stuff. If I can make people think about that, I've done my job and I feel like I've, I'm building, I continue to build my legacy, not getting paid as a career, mind you, but I'm still have that satisfaction that I'm still a marine biologist. Mm-hmm. I'm still a marine conservationist and I'm still doing marine conservation. I'm doing it from, a larger platform than I would have ever had working for the government. And I'm reaching the public, which I feel is the most important aspect of marine conservation is to be able to change behaviors based on information that they use. And I'm I'm still exploring how to do behavior change. You know, I'm working with a, a great woman by the name of Brooke Tully, who used to be in commercial marketing and now she's in conservation marketing. Um, I'm, I'm playing a big role or, or bigger and bigger role in, uh, society conservation biology's working group of, um, uh, social and, and marketing conservation. Uh, you know, like it's, 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 it's changed really the way I've approached conservation from when the beginning of this conversation, I talked about how I love pure research mm-hmm. to now doing research on communication and behavior change and, mm-hmm. and using my audience as a way, because they're the ones I'm trying to change their behavior. Some of them I don't because they, they align with a lot of the stuff that we do. But sometimes we just don't know what we can do until we know other people are doing it. Right. We know the community, right? So that's what, what's so great. I don't get paid for what I'm doing here. And I might even find a job at one point that's completely out of marine conservation. But I'm always going to have the podcast. And then right? always keep your foot in the door with it. And like you said, it's your legacy. And it's a beautiful thing to provide. For everybody and i want to thank you for it because i think your podcast is fantastic i do listen well to thank it. you you've got a lot of great stuff on it now i like that you kind of break things down you know ocean news and it's wonderful so thank you well, for th- what you do. thank you i appreciate that you bet well i want to thank you too for actually starting a podcast you know, <laughs> i'm a i'm a huge advocate i've presented at conferences before on people should be starting more of a podcast because as you know this is a great platform to teach people People listen to podcasts longer. They listen to during their commute, walking the dog, uh, just being outside on a hike, uh, wherever, you know, working out. They use it as an opportunity to learn. And, you know, there's 750,000 podcasts in the store and growing in the, in the Apple podcast store. 
and of course Spotify and all these other uh, right. platforms that have, that have been. iHeartRadio and your favorite podcast player. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. Exactly. And uh, and and but the funny thing is, is like I've always I've always been uh, an advocate of more people starting you know ocean related podcasts. Yes. And, and I remember being asked a question at the, at one of the conferences and they're like, well, isn't that competition for you? And I'm like, yes. And I'm like, I want them to compete. I want them to, I want you, I want everybody who starts a podcast in marine conservation to do better because you're reaching a potentially a different audience, potentially an overlapping audience, mm-hmm. but you're reaching more audience uh, members. Uh, we're getting the word out there. We may have different styles. We may have different approaches. Like within the Speak Up for Blue network, we have six podcasts. Right. You know, we have Speak Up for the Ocean Blue. We have Marine Conservation Happy Hour, which is like talking marine conservation issues with two other people while we drink. Uh, there's Conciencia Azul, which is the Speak Up for Blue podcast hosted by Melissa Marquez, but in Spanish. Um, we have uh, a Dugongs and Sea Dragons, which is a Dungeons and Dragons game for, based on marine conservation, which is done by a number of marine conservationists and scientists in the field that you've, been, that you've heard on this podcast before. Um, and then, or on my podcast. And then we have the Marine Mammal Society has done um, a podcast that we, that we are in charge of, and that's the Marine Mammal Science Podcast. And then we have the Association of Environmental Studies and Sciences, which is a podcast we call Environmental Studies and Sciences. Um, we're, very, we're very creative with those two names, by the way. <laughs> Um, but they started recently in September. We just launched those podcasts. So we've had six podcasts, you know, in the past four years that have been released that are all ocean related, you know, and they all have, right. And they all have their own sort of angle to it, just like you. Mm -hmm. So you want to be a marine biologist. You start it because you wanted to answer the question that people would ask you multiple times. Uh, And so you're answering it all in one, but you're also bringing in other people's experiences that are in marine biology, marine Mm -hmm. conservation, what have you. Um, so there's, there's a lots of room for people to start a podcast. There's lots of room for people to start blogs. The thing is, is we just need to do more of it. I'm a huge advocate of science communication, especially for marine science, because people don't know. People you know, don't know. Yeah. If you look at your five closest friends that are not marine biologists, they probably don't know everything that you do about the marine science, which could have an impact on our decision-making, which could have an impact on the way we vote. You know, I've been talking a lot about the Canadian election in the last couple of days because we just had it on Monday. Mm. And, you know, that, in my opinion, that was a vote for the environment. There was, in Canada, there's the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, and there's a couple of other parties, but those two are usually form some sort of government, whether it be a majority or a minority. The biggest difference between those parties was the Conservatives did not have a true climate change plan. Mm. The rest of the parties, the Liberals, the, the New Democratic Party, the Green Party, uh, even the Bloc Québécois Party, which is a, a Quebec separatist party, had a climate change plan because they realize that it's affecting their culture and affecting their province. Mm. They have an Arctic component to their province and a southern component in, in the uh, St. Lawrence River. That is, you know, that is a super important part. So if the Conservatives got power, our environmental degradation would have hit skills that we couldn't even think of. Um, it happened last time the Conservatives had power. They deregulated a lot of our, our best regula- environmental regulations for mm-hmm. pipelines and oil and gas, and they would have done this exact same thing right now. Luckily, the Liberals got a minority government. They'd been in power. They had a majority for the last four years. Now they got a minority government. 
and the, 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 they have to team up with another party to, to form sort of a, an actual government that could pass bills, which are more environmentally friendly. So now we're really going to see uh, an environment, we're really going to see a country that's going to embrace environmental change, embrace climate change reduction, um, and I think even more than what the liberals were doing, because they're a little bit centered that they bought a pipeline, so-and-so, they weren't the best. They did a lot of stuff for the environment, but not all of it. So you have a lot of these types of components that, you know, it, it be, being able to speak to people about the environment and being able to reach people through a podcast helps with how they're informed they are to vote. Right. You and know, I think as, that's, you bring up a really good point with voting. People don't often correlate like their knowledge of the oceans and, you know, the things that they learn to translate into voting. It does matter. It really matters. <laughs> absolutely it matters i mean you look at you know the obama administration compared to the trump administration it's it's night and day right you know to the point where the obama administration declared climate change their number one threat in the u.s even even the navy said it and then you get the trump administration that doesn't even believe climate change is a human problem is a human cause problem right. that's a big difference in how policies are going to get made right. um, bringing coal back all that kind of stuff you know i don't have to go on because i'm sure <laughs> the reader, the listeners know, but you know, it's, it's, it makes a difference. So, you know, come 2020, as we approach 2020, you're going to see my podcast really start to focus on a lot of the environmental uh, regulation changes that have happened over the past four years, you know, to inform people that, look, I'm not trying to say whether you should vote for Republican or Democrat. What I'm trying to inform you is all the change that are done. And if environment is important to you, you're going to vote for the environment at that point. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and that's, that's the point of the podcast is to inform yes. people to make those changes. So you can make very large changes through your vote and you can make very small changes through your daily routine. It's true. It's very true. Thank you for that. No problem. So I have, we, we went, we got really way over there. Yeah. So <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, you're fine. It was good. I thought we, it was really good points you brought up. But I have a couple lighthearted questions that I would like to ask. Okay. And then before we end. So what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And I feel like you probably have one from living on a boat for eight months. Um, And this could be, you know, the best day in the field. Everything went right. You saw dolphins. Most amazing day too. Everything went wrong. And I don't even know how I'm here right now. But it's a great story right now. (laughs) So I, we all have each of those days. That's just the nature of field work. Yeah. Yeah. But what is your favorite? Uh, I think my favorite was, uh, I, I was, I was a Marine mammal when I was consulting, I was a Marine mammal observer in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the best days was when you're up in the summer, it's 23 and a half hours of sun, mm. you know? And so, I actually worked the night shift. So the, the reason why, so we had a night and day shift, even though there was no night, but we had a night and day shift because we had to do a 24 hour watch. I decided to take the night for two reasons. One, I wanted to kind of witness the all sun all the time kind of thing. <laughs> I was about 15 degrees Celsius, you know, which is a perfect sort of fall weather. Um, so it was kind of nice to be outside in the sunny kind of weather, barely any clouds. Most of the time it was absolutely beautiful. The water was perfectly slick. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just got to experience that whole Arctic experience. And I remember at one time, uh, it was probably around like two o'clock in the morning, still quite sunny, 
you know, we're, we're monitoring for marine mammals. We had to shut the equipment down. It's seismic equipment. I won't go into the details about why, but it has to do with noise. There were marine mammals around us, but we hadn't seen them in about 20 minutes. And we had to wait till they popped up to see if they were out of the bounds that we could turn on the instrumentation again. And all of a sudden, I just look over uh, to the port side and I just say, oh, my God. And it was this massive, you know, 60, 65-foot bowhead whale that just kind of came out for a breath. And it came out of nowhere, but right beside our boat and just kind of went up. And I saw the entire fluke, the entire tail just go mm. right down. It was like the perfect, perfect sight. Of course, too fast for any kind of any type of photography or anything like that. And you not have to that take I the mental caught. picture. Exactly. But it was one of my best moments out in the field. It was, it was absolutely stunning and I'll never forget it. Mm, that's special. Yeah. It's always special seeing huge megafauna like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to carry on with that, then what is your favorite sea creature? Oh, my favorite sea creature is the cuttlefish. I okay. think, uh, Why? yeah, the, I, well, for one, I find them fascinating. The, the body type, especially sort of, you know, in the, in the, in the mollusca phylum, in, in the, the taxonomic uh, sort of uh, category that they're in, you have squid, you have, you know, octopus, and, and then you have these cuttlefish. And, and they're kind of like a little bit in the middle of, bo of, of both of those species in terms they of are. evolutionary scale. And they just have a really cool look to them. Uh, their, their camouflage is absolutely amazing. And I experienced it uh, firsthand. I was in Jamaica on a trip. It wasn't a science related. It was just a trip we were on. We were in one of the most spectacular, spectacular sort of cottage type places in like where the blue lagoon was shot. And it was just, I was in the water. I was coming out of a snorkel trip with my friend. My friend came out first. We have a dock that, were, that was headed to our cottage and I was about to come up on the ladder and I see something out on the left hand side of me. This is my peripheral and I kind of look and nothing is there. And I look back up, I start climbing up and I see a little flash and I was like, what's going on? And I, I, I sat in the water and I looked out and over time I could see there was, there was about a dozen cuttlefish lined up in a line looking at me. But every time I looked, they would camouflage themselves. So it was really hard to see. And it was almost like a bit like the, the movie, The Predator, where you like, you can kind of see the outline of it, but you're, you're not too sure if there's something there. Oh. And then they would, they would turn like bright pink, then bright red, and then they would go again. They would go, you know, uh, uh, transparent again or something. And, it, and I sat there probably for another hour and a half. And they sat there looking at me and I sat there looking at them. I didn't move. I didn't swim around them. I didn't want to disturb them. And then finally they swam off after about an hour and a half. And I remember getting up and uh, I almost had tears in my eyes. And my wife mm -hmm. was just like, what are you, what's wrong with you? I'm like, <laughs> there were a dozen cuttlefish just staring at me. We had like a, a staring contest for the last hour and a half. Cause they expected me to come up. They were asking me to come up and I, I just said, no, leave me alone. I'm happy. And I'm in my happy place. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So it was, it was quite the experience. So I've always had a, a, a sort of a, a soft spot for, for cuttlefish just because of that. that yeah. They chose you. Yeah, exactly. I was one of them. For <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's such a cool experience. Thank you for sharing that. You bet. All right. As we wrap up, there's so much more I want to chat with you about. So you definitely have to come on the podcast again. I would love to. Awesome. So as we wrap up, um, I love to provide an action item for people. So, and we chatted a little bit about this before the podcast. So what yeah. do you have for the audience? It has to do with careers. I mean, this is a, essentially, you know, you want So you want to be a marine biologist. Right. Um, I want to warn people. It's not easy to become a marine biologist. And it, it, I mean, you can go to school for marine biology, 
Mm-hmm. And if you can afford the tuition and you enjoy what you do, by all means, go ahead. But keep in mind, whether you're an undergraduate, a graduate, like with a master's or a graduate with a PhD, or you come out as an undergraduate and you have experience and you volunteer and everything, it's not easy to get a job. There are a lot more people who are doing marine biology and there's a lot less funding than there used to be. And jobs are not as secure as they used to be. And I'm not trying to, to, to talk people out of it. I'm just preparing people that you can't just go about your business and apply to jobs when you want, you know, and, and get the job that you want necessarily without doing extra work. Be prepared to do what you need to do to separate yourself out from everybody else. And on that note too is, you don't have to have a career in marine biology to do marine biology. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned previously. In particularly marine conservation. Exactly. I, I have a podcast on marine conservation. I don't get paid for it. It satisfies my passion for what I'm doing. And I, I'll tell you, it was a big struggle, you know, quitting a, a scientific job at the federal government where I had a pension, where I had benefits, where I had a bit of security and go into an entrepreneurial type of life. Mm-hmm. But I am so happy I did so. Because I was able to grow Speak Up for the Ocean Blue and I was able to have a lasting impression on a number of people. And that satisfied me, you know, to the point where I'm like, I could get a job now in business. You know, it doesn't matter where I work. I know that I'm still staying true to marine conservation, even though it's not part of my career, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so I, I want people to sort of feel that way. Don't feel the pressure that you need to get a job. By all means, if you want to be a part of your career, go ahead. Be prepared to do extra work. Like volunteer, help out at conferences to, to plan conferences, start a podcast, start a YouTube channel. We don't have YouTube. We have maybe one or two YouTube channels, including myself, that really talk about marine conservation, marine science. We don't have any more. Start a YouTube channel. You know, bl- you know, do that microblogging through Instagram. Talk about oceans. You know, don't worry about competitors. Yes, people are doing it, but go ahead and do it uh, because it's important. We need to get that out there. Plus, Managers and hiring managers will see this and say, this person's really interesting. And one thing that I'll say right before I finish here is that Nathan, the guy who did Ocean Talk Friday with me, uh, he works for Oceana right now. And, mm-hmm. and one of the, I, I still to this day believe that one of the reasons why he works at Oceana was because he volunteered his own time, you know, 10 or 15 hours a week to do the podcast with me, you know, prepare all the stuff and do that work, promote it. And that, showed his dedication to to marine conservation and when you apply to a marine conservation organization like that they like to see that because they like to see that you're really in it you're not just going through the motions you're really in it and dedicated to that life so if you are dedicated to that life do something extra while you're waiting to get a job they'll people will notice it they check your social profile now and they'll (laughs) notice they'll notice what you're saying say good stuff you know be positive don't be negative on anybody but you know, that's, it's a really important thing is to go above and beyond because there are so many more people applying to jobs where there are less jobs than there were before. Absolutely. That was good, hard hitting advice, but <laughs> a little, advice. it's a little rough to hear, but that's what I needed to hear when I was, uh, when I was just starting out. Very good. Well, thank you so much. So if listeners want to, where, where's the best place to find you? I feel like we listed 600 different places. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, go to speakupforblue.com. If you go to speakupforblue.com, there's always you can contact me. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram at speakupforblue. Um, of course, listen to my podcast after you listen 
through all of this, this, so you want to be a marine biologist podcast, um, <laughs> but go to my podcast, subscribe. Uh, we have a number of them. If you just, if you just search any podcast app, speak up for blue, that's what we go by for our authorship. And you'll be able to find all the different ones that we're, that we're a part of. Um, and, and yeah, and start learning, contact me by any means, uh, by any of those means, direct message me or whatever you need to do. Um, there's always ways to do it, but start by listening to my podcast. So you get to know me. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. And I will put a link to the show notes for everybody, or I will put a link to everything that you just mentioned in the show notes for all the listeners. Awesome. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for being on, Andrew. This was awesome. I really appreciate your time. I had a blast. What you do. <laughs> thank you. I had a blast. I appreciate it. Hey, y'all. Kara here. Really quickly, I found the Seinfeld Marine Biologist episode that Andrew talked about. There's a link in the show notes over at marinebio.life backslash Andrew. The clip is less than five minutes and it's hilarious. It's definitely worth checking out. Again, it's marinebio.life backslash Andrew and a link to the Seinfeld episode as well as everything else we've chatted about today. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.